Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Keeping our marine ecosystems safe and healthy in a changing climate. We hear about tales from the reef and what actually happens in a bleaching event and what that might mean for the future of the Great Barrier Reef and what Japanese islands can teach us about our reef's ability to survive in a changed climate. Plus, what is at risk in the North American Great Lakes region and what that has to do with a snowstorm? As people across the world celebrate Earth Day and scientists march in protest upon the numerous challenges and issues facing science politically across the world, one of the major stories and concerns of a lot of people is obviously climate change and the impact that that's having on our environment. And that's pretty topical when we talk about Earth Day. And one of the places on the planet Earth that is actually listed as a significant place, a place with huge cultural value, natural beauty, and importance to our planet, and that is the Australian Great Barrier Reef. It is one of the UNESCO World Heritage listed areas, and it's about 2,300 kilometres long. That's one of the most biodiverse places in the world, stretching from the tip above the Cape York in North Queensland, all the way down to the south. It's one of the most beautiful and lush marine environments in the world. But in the last couple of decades, particularly between 1998 and 2002, we've seen coral breaching events, and we had one in 98, one in 2002. And now we've seen another two in 2016 and 2017. And scientists are now particularly worried about the state of health of the reef, not just in the future, once climate change has more of an impact, but actually right now. And what they're worried about is coral bleaching. And look, we've had coral bleaching events before, as I mentioned in 98 and 2002, and we know that this is a thing that does happen from time to time. But two years in a row makes it quite difficult for this actual reef to survive. So let's talk a little bit about what coral bleaching actually is. So coral itself is a, is a symbiotic relationship between the actual structure of the coral polyps, the big superstructure, so to speak, the colonies of the polyps that sort of live and grow together like a big forest. And inside them, is actually living inside the, the tissue effectively, is a bunch of algae. And this algae receives light and turns that light into uh, nutrients that the, uh, the coral needs to grow, basically by using nitrogen, phosphorus, and other, and other waste from the coral. They generate energy from the sun using photosynthesis, a sort of combination effect. And then that energy um, helps the coral actually grow itself. So these algae and the coral polyps are engaged in this big, beautiful, mutually beneficial cycle. The problem is, under times of extreme environmental stress, such as a rapid change in ocean temperature or other issues, the coral basically freaks out and goes into a state of shock. And when this happens, it actually expels the algae that's living inside its tissue. And that's terrible news because without the algae, then the coral can't thrive, flourish, and grow. It doesn't have its partner to produce the energy and food that it needs to survive. And the algae is just discharged and floats around and and moves on or dies. And that's terrible because it's not like the algae can then go back into the coral once it's been shed and once it's lost, it's lost. Um, So then we'll have to wait for more algae to grow in its place. And basically this big bleaching process is basically what we call coral bleaching and we call it coral bleaching because it's actually very noticeable Um, when you actually see it the corals lose a lot of their color and their life and they just look like well big lumps of nothingness and 
we've inspected the coral, the 1,500-kilometre str stretch of coral on parts of the Great Barrier Reef aerial surveys. And when we've been doing that, we can actually see this spread of this coral bleaching event. Uh, and you can actually track where it's worst affected and where some areas that are surviving. And the problem is, we had one event last year, and that was devastating enough as it is. But even the fastest growing coral takes about 10 years to recover from a coral bleaching event. And when we had another one in 2017, that didn't really give very long for the coral to try and recover. In fact, it's pretty much nigh on impossible for the coral to survive two hard hits in a row like that. But that's where we are. That's what's happened. And people now have a lot of grave fears, including researchers from James Cook University in Townsville, which is very close and one of the keen areas of research into the Great Barrier Reef's health. Um, and we have to start to wonder, well, what's causing all of these troubles? Well, it's not just the, the rising temperature of the coral reef. There's a lot of other threats to the reef itself, including expanded development in North Queensland, the increased amount of ship traffic um, as the ports in there open up for mining purposes, along with running, farming runoff, so large amounts of nitrogen and other phosphorus and other ammonia and other minerals coming from the land, running down the streams and into the bays themselves, causing more further issues for the reef. And, of course, the invasive species like the crown starfish. And all of those are sort of long-term things that have been happening. And we just had a Category 4 cyclone rip through this whole region of the reef last month as well. So it's not particularly good conditions for the reef. And that's why scientists are very, very concerned about the health of the reef and what could be done going forward. Now, some of the areas of the reef that are sheltered and sort of protected um, have suffered less damage according to the Association of Marine Park Tourism Operators in uh, North Queensland. And that's good, I mean, mainly for the tourist destinations around the Whitsundays, but it's not good overall for the health of the reef. Now, Australia is trying to do a lot to protect the reef. We are spending around $2 billion over the next decade to protect the reef, and we have to. Um, we agreed in 2015 uh, to do that, otherwise UNESCO was going to put the reef on the endangered list. But we're not really doing enough at this point in time to, to sort of protect it. And it's a big challenge that we have to think about going forward because not only is the reef culturally and environmentally significant for the region, it's also a huge part of that region's economy. So if we lose all of that, we need to think long and hard about the price that we have to pay. Now, obviously, the Great Barrier Reef is only one reef across the world, and most of the reefs are actually scattered around the equatorial waters regions. Uh, let's take the Caribbean as a place with a lot of fantastic reefs, as is a lot of Southeast Asia and some areas just on the eastern coast of Africa. And that's beautiful and lovely. But there's actually some really far north reefs settled around Japan. In particular, there's one little region just south of Tokyo that has some of the most interesting reef conditions and it might be able to serve as a looking glass into the future of what might be coming for us for areas like the Great Barrier Reef. There's a small volcanic island just south of Tokyo about 100 kilometers south called the Shikine Island and what's important about the Shikine Island sort of cluster is that around the island there's a whole group of underwater volcanoes and these underwater volcanoes are constantly flooding the region of all the little coves and atolls around this with CO2 and make the water less alkaline. 
And what's interesting about that is it's basically like what would happen if climate change was left unchecked. CO2 levels in the oceans and atmospheres rose incredibly and uh, temperatures rose as well. It basically is a mimicking what we think based on all our evidence and models the oceans might look like in the year 2100, which is fascinating for marine biologists. It basically has made a super acidic little bit of ocean, which is really, really interesting to study. But what's even more fascinating about this is that there are corals and reefs and marine life there. Now, this is very, very interesting. And what makes it even more fascinating is there's some reefs around this island that are very subject to this high acidity ocean. And there's some probably, you know, a couple hundred kilometers away that are in the same position, so to speak, but not affected by the same level of acidity. So that means we can sort of do a compare and contrast between these two types of reef. See how one fares in this highly acidic environment, this future potential world, and one how it's happening in the now. And groups of researchers, from obviously from Japan's University of Tsukaba, as well as researchers from the French Institute, École Pratique des Hautes Études, who are basically on this multi-year journey on a ship studying the various reefs of the world, have come to Japan to now look into what we can learn from marines' life ability to survive and even thrive in this very, very strange environment. Now, the corals, the planktons, the seaweeds and fish seem to be able to survive in this inhospitable environment, this really high, acidic, warm, strange, volcanic CO2 area of the ocean near the Shikina Islands. And that's very, very interesting because it suggests that as climate change happens and warmer parts of the oceans increase, we might actually see a spread of coral to new regions, but over a very, very long period of time. Areas that we thought coral couldn't survive in, basically, because it was too cold. But the big important thing to remember here is that these areas of the ocean are able to survive and have life adapt and thrive in it only because the time scale in which this has happened is very, very long. These areas have been having volcanoes in them for millions of years, and those millions of years has given life enough time to catch up. And the problem with anthropomorphic climate change is that, well, we're ta making it happen so fast that it's very, very difficult for plant life and animal life to adapt to it in any type of fast way. So while we can learn a lot about what the oceans in 2100 might look like by looking at the Shikina Islands, we can't obviously say everything will be fine because we're sort of working on a different timescale. But it is a fascinating thing to study. And hopefully this exhibition, coordinated by the French research group, but it's really a multinational affair, uh, will study more and learn more about the reefs across the world and how they're adapting and what we can learn from them to help our reefs in the future survive. So turning away from reefs and focusing on somewhere, well, much colder, much more tranquil. In North America, there's a great series of lakes. Effectively, we call them lakes, but really they're inland seas. The Great Lakes region is home to many of hundreds of interconnected small and very large lakes, rivers, and a variety of ecosystems that span over a variety of states 
and a huge population area. And these are very important for water, but also farming, agriculture, fish, marine life, and just general life as well. But one of the big things about all these lakes is that they're in the north of the North American continent, and it's one of the areas that is quite cold. And the problem is, as people live around these areas, well, you have to do things like deal with huge amounts of snow. And in the more recent years, we've seen many, many large snowstorms, the polar vortex, the great sheaths of ice spreading across these countrysides, and it makes it really dangerous to drive around. And so what a lot of the time we do in these regions is we salt the road. The salt prevents the ice from melting and refreezing, and thus makes it safer, and saves a lot of lives, and means that we can still live despite these crazy snowstorms that happen. And this is all well and good. But scientists have been researching the potential implications of all this increased salt usage on the beautiful freshwater lakes we have in that region. So researchers from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, together with Dartmouth College and coordinated by their Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies, have been really looking at the impact of salt and salinity levels in these freshwater lakes. These what are otherwise incredibly important parts of the Northern American ecosystem. So basically, this team of researchers did a study across about 371 freshwater lakes. And each of these lakes were about at least 4 hectares in size, with about 10 years of, of data on what chloride levels were in those lakes. Now, most of them were, 284 were located in the North American Lakes region, but they did look at other regions as well, just to get a bit more data. And basically, what they studied was chloride levels across these freshwater lakes over time, over decades, to actually get a picture of what's happening to these lakes. Are they getting more or less saline? And what risks might be happening? And the studies show that about 44% of these lakes are increasing rapidly in terms of levels of chloride and means that they're undergoing some long-term increases in salinity levels. As I mentioned before, about 23 million metric tons of sodium-based, sodium chloride-based salt is applied to road surfaces in North America each year to melt snow away. And that salt, that sodium chloride, has to go somewhere. Um, and what these researchers did, so they picked these lakes where they have the chloride levels to study, and then they looked around them to see in a 100 to 1,500 meter buffer to find all the roads nearby, basically the runoff zones. So were there roads around these lakes that might have had runoff, might have had salting, and what that runoff might do to the lake's ecosystem? And the results were quite interestingly clear. If there was a road within 500 meters of the lake shoreline, there was pretty much a 70% chance of the lake to have an increased salt level or salinity level inside the lake's tested area. And if you applied that across the all the other lakes known about in the United States, um, not just the ones that they studied in this uh, analysis, it means there's about another 7,000 lakes that are at risk of unsustainable levels of increase in their salinity levels. Because basically, if the current levels continue, uh, it means that in the next 50 years, most or many of the lakes in North America will actually have salinity levels or chloride levels that are higher than the EPA's recommended safe water drinking levels, which is not good. 
about 14 of the North American lakes region's lakes are expected to hit uh, unsustainable salinity levels for life, aquatic life, uh, by 2050. And another 47 uh, are, are on track to be about the 50% marker of those danger levels. This goes to show that, okay, if we then review our policies and say, okay, we don't uh, salt roads near to the actual lake themselves, these reservoirs, then we can do a lot to actually protect it and protect the uh, lake's ecosystem as well from potentially dangerous increases in salinity, which keeps the fish alive and, more importantly, keeps us alive because we rely on a lot of that water for our drinking, our farming, and our general life. So this is some great work being done by cooperation between University of Dartmouth, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, University of Waterloo, and coordinated by the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Studying reefs across the world from the Great Barrier Reef to Japan and what we can learn about the future of our healthy reefs and how salting our roads to save us from ice can lead to devastating impacts on the lakes. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.